I don't think I missed anything. All right, well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark 13. Last week, as you remember, we, we looked through uh, the entire chapter of Mark 13. Uh, my message was entitled, Applications of Prophecy. And um, what I'd like to do again is read the entire chapter as I read last week. It just helps to put the whole Olivet Discourse in in our minds, uh, these things deal with future events, at least future from the disciples' standpoint of view. And really, they were future for the disciples. And some of those things are past for us, but they were future for them. He was telling the things that were going to take place, the destruction of the temple, the trouble that was going to come, uh, the return of Christ, and then a few parables, just as you think about Jesus returning and how to, how to live the major question again of this chapter for us is, have these things been fulfilled? Now, some of these things I believe have been fulfilled and some of these things I believe have not been fulfilled. Um, but but as I read through this here, I want you to see how, um, at least particularly in today's text, how unremarkable they are in terms of it seems like he's describing much of much of life um, and really my not not a lot different than the days we live in. Not a lot different than the days 500 years ago, the days after Christ. Many of these words are. The burden of my message this morning is this, that we might discern the times. You know, too often people look to this war or that war or the, the financial situation that's happening or an earthquake here or there and they worry and fear that we're near the end of time. Right? When, when some catastrophe happens, people instantly think, whoa, God is getting our attention and He is. Um, but often think that, well, that's the fulfillment of, of Jesus and of what his words here. And one of the things I want us to see is how, how regular these words are. The burden of my message today is really I'm going to show you a lot of these things that I think have been true from the day of Jesus really until our day today. Nothing particularly remarkable, but they were future for the, the disciples. Now, the only remarkable thing particularly comes the first two verses, which is the destruction of the temple, which was... Uh, Very amazing. So let's read Mark chapter 13. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? And Jesus began to say, see to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places and there will also be famines. And these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. But be on guard, be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts and you will be flogged in the synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my name's sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. And when they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are going to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death and a father's child and the Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. 
But when you see the abomination of desolation let standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who's on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house. And the one who's in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant in those days and nursing babies in those days. But pray that it may not happen in the winter, for those days will be a time of tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the creation, which God created until now and never will. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ or behold, he is there. Do not believe him for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed. Behold, I have told you everything in advance. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then He will send forth the angels and will gather together His elect from the four winds and from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know the summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that He is near right at the door. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man away on a journey who, upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigned to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know When the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and you find you asleep. But what I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. Well, just want to start digging in to my message this morning. Last week I preached a long introduction. You remember that? The Mayans coming and the the danger to being too involved in prophecy. Today we just dig in. Point number one is called the temple, verses one and two. Because that was the topic of conversation. He was going out of the temple. One of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. At this point, really, the public ministry of Jesus is finished. He is... uh, walking out of the temple in some regards for the last time. Um, he has taught publicly there. He's been there many times as a child. And he is, he is leaving now, kind of shutting the doors on his public ministry. And, and on his way out, one of the things we see is uh, the disciples asking him about these wonderful stones and wonderful buildings, just, just saying those. And indeed, it was a wonderful sight. Herod the king actually was responsible for building this great temple complex here. And actually, it was the third temple that sat on this very site. This site is called Mount Moriah. Uh, it's probably where Abraham offered up Isaac uh, as his son. It's the place in Jerusalem where God had chosen to make his name dwell there. Uh, the first temple was built by Solomon. 
When King David passed away, he was out fighting and he amassed a kingdom and, and had many riches in his death and with many resources, the healthy chunk of them went towards building this temple. And this temple took seven years to build. 200,000 men built the temple over that time. They imported wood from Lebanon from the north. They, they chiseled the wood in quarries. They covered the inside of the, the holy place, the holy of holies, with gold. It was a magnificent place. Even when the Queen of Sheba came, she heard about the wisdom of Solomon and all the glories of, of Israel. And so when she went and she came, she was amazed because the half wasn't told her, she said. She said, you exceed in wisdom and prosperity the report which I heard. Right? She just said, Solomon, his wisdom was much. And then also just even the prosperity that was there where silver was not counted as very much because it was common as stones. The Queen of Sheba was impressed. She was impressed by the temple as well. But that temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. He captured Jerusalem, burned the city with fire, <clears throat> and took exiles to Babylon. You can read about that in Lamentations, how the, the cities and the streets, which used to be bubbling, were quiet. And the temple gone and destroyed. It became a, a ghost town. And then after 70 years in exile, some exiles came back from Babylon who built the second temple when they returned from exile. Zerubbabel was the one in charge of building the temple. He was among those who returned. And I remember Ezra and Nehemiah, they came back, helped rebuild Jerusalem. Nehemiah built the wall and Ezra taught the law and set everything straight. Now, the second temple was not as glorious as the first one. In fact, there were some old men who had seen Solomon's temple before uh, Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed that temple. And when they saw the second temple, um, Haggai the prophet said that it seemed like nothing in comparison. And, and these old men wept because of how small this new temple was. Well, this temple, though, served uh, the people of Israel very well for many years. Uh, however, it's often used for a military fortress, right? Trouble would erupt in Jerusalem and where's a strong building that they can hide and shoot arrows from and gather themselves and resources? Where's the place that was protected? But it was the temple. And in fact, even 50 years before the birth of Christ, some political difficulties in the land, 12,000 Jews were killed and many used the temple as a, as a fortress to fight against the enemies that were coming. And as a result, the temple was often defiled as Gentiles would come in and, and capture the people there or was damaged for some reason or another. And so Herod didn't like particularly this part that, that it was being used as a refuge in a, a fortress. And so he designated, he would build the, the third temple, Herod would. And this is the temple that Jesus saw. He told the Jews that it didn't measure up to Solomon's temple. And so we need to make a bigger temple. And uh, Josephus says that Herod was building the temple to make a name for himself. Now, whatever the name, whatever the reason why he provided, construction began about 20 B.C. And so that by the time that Jesus came along is about 45 years. Even there's a, uh, a verse in John chapter 2, verse 20, in which they said, hey, the temple's taken 46 years to build. But it's probably under constant construction and even being updated against even after that. This is a building that took a long time to build. It was a magnificent structure. I remember when Yvonne and I went to... Uh, to Israel about a, a dozen years ago. Even what's remaining is remarkable. What's remaining is the, the Temple Mount area. And I remember when I saw the Temple Mount, I just stunned at the beautiful white limestone that glistened in the sun. Every single stone was nicely beveled 
on all the edges, just perfect. Um, I remember also how, how large these stones were that, that supported the Temple Mount. Um, they used no mortar on, on these stones. They chiseled them exactly straight so they can put one right on top of each other. And these things were so huge that these stones are not going anywhere. In fact, I remember pointing out one stone that was 12 meters by 3 meters by 4 meters. Okay, picture that. 12 meters. That's close to right from where I am to the door there. Maybe a little bit less. Three meters wide. That's like nine feet wide. Actually, it was probably 12, four meters, 12 feet wide and nine feet tall. That's a big stone. Now, how it got there, I have no idea. That was the, the largest stone that they have seen, um, weighing 400 tons. Most, most stones are smaller, a lot smaller. Only weigh two to five tons each. Now, how they got there, I'm not sure. But these stones supported the whole Temple Mount uh, because this is on Mount. It's on Mount Moriah. And the structure was built around it. And then inside of it was filled up so that it could be a flat temple area on top. Tacitus describes then this, this temple that was supported on top of all these stones as possessing enormous riches. The Talmud said of Herod's temple, there's the most magnificent building in the world. You know, they have the seven wonders of the ancient world. I don't know why the, the temple of Herod didn't quite make it, but it, it didn't. But these, these riches and this building was what set the gaze of the disciples. Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Now, I find it remarkable that they would quote this because when you've been someplace a lot, when you've seen it many times, it, it, it loses its, its awe and wonder, Right. I mean, if, if, if you go to some place enough, the first time you walk in there, be like, whoa. Second time you look in there, you say, wow, this is neat. Third time you walk in there, like, oh, and they start missing it. But such was the building that was so impressive that as they're walking out of this building and said, look, at, look at what wonderful buildings. And then Jesus tells her it's destruction. Do you see these great buildings? There wasn't just one temple there. There were also um, other outbuildings and Solomon's portico was there and the Antonio Fortress is there. There are other, other different places that were there on, on the temple. He says, you see these buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And here Jesus prophesies the destruction of the temple. We saw at the end of chapter 12 of, of how broken the religious system was when the, the religious leaders were prideful. They walked around in long robes and they loved the respectful greetings and the chief seats and the Synagogues, the place of honor at the banquets, and they devoured widows, made long prayers. We saw how, how this widow here had only two small coins left, and the system was so corrupt that it forced her to give over her very last coins of what she had. The system was broken in need of repair, and Jesus says, I'm going to tell you how it's going to be broken. It's going to be wiped out totally. And I love the accuracy of this prophecy. If you go to Jerusalem today, you won't see the temple. It was destroyed when the Romans entered Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And in fact, I have a slide here, a picture of what you're going to see now. If you can help us with that, Ray. This is the Temple Mount today. All right. This is taken from Ariel above the Mount of Olives. So if you go down the Mount of Olives where Jesus is saying these things, you go down on a thousand feet or so, something like that. But all these walls, you know, around the area, that was the temple. That's what Herod built the walls. And then he built the temple out of similar material. Right now, today, there are two um, Muslim mosques. There's one called the Dome of the Rock, uh, which is the uh, octagon shaped building right there. And then the other is the Al-Aska Mosque. That's down there towards the south. 
uh, that points towards Mecca. Uh, but these are like the holy place of the, the Muslim people today. In fact, uh, the Dome of the Rock, that dome there is made of solid gold. It's a gift from the King of Jordan uh, a few years back in the 19, I'm not sure, 20s maybe. can't quite remember when he, we gave that. But in Jesus' day... It didn't look like this, but here's what people speculated it did look like. Here's another picture in Jesus' day. This is actually from a model in, uh, in Jerusalem where they have, uh, they, they've, they've kind of sketched up to try to figure out what the temple looked like in the days of Jesus. And so this is all fabricated. This is all really small, okay? So that whole thing is maybe 10 feet across, if I remember, something like that. And so it's pretty, but that's what they projected would have looked like. So there you see the same walls. But around the Temple Mount, and there you have the temple, and you got the various buildings um, kind of surrounding the thing. You see the holy place, and then in there you see the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. And everything was there, right? The core of the Gentiles, the core of the women, the bronze altar, the bronze laver, the lampstand, table of showbread, and, the holy, and then the Holy of Holies. You'd have the Ark of the Covenant, which the priests on the Day of Atonement would go and sprinkle the sacrifice for his sins and for the sins of the people. Now, where exactly that temple was, though, we don't know. It's a, it's a total guess. In fact, one of the things that's interesting about this is that we have zero remains of the temple at all. Um, one of the... Um, let's see if I can stop this here. There's a magazine called Biblical Archaeology Review which I used to subscribe to. I don't anymore. My father-in-law just gave me another one. It just talks about all the, all the archaeology around Israel. It's very interesting because it always confirms the Bible. And um, there was a time where Herschel Shanks, who edits this, um, he talked to a man who was an expert in uh, Jerusalem's Temple Mount. And this guy was David Jacobson, is his name. And so Herschel Shanks called David Jacobson and said, hey, how about, how about we have an article in... Uh, in, in our, our magazine about where the temple actually was. And so really at that time there were two main views from Asher Kaufman and a man named Lean Rittmeyer. It's not important their names, but they are fellow experts and, uh, about where the temple was. And as she dialogued with uh, Herschel Shanks, she said, you know, I, I don't agree with either of these guys. I've got a different view. And so he said, why don't you present your view? And so here he did, and this view was called Sacred Geometry. Uh, unlocking the secret of the temple. This was one month, is what he did, and he came out even then the the next month in the next the next magazine and did another one called Sacred Geometry. As he he proved his case, and what he tried to do was try to look at the walls and where the walls were and tried to intersect. And then the next one, uh, Hoffman and Rittmeyer had a chance to respond to his views, and ultimately this was the big question on their mind: it says where was the temple? They don't know. And, and, and the idea here is that there's no archaeological evidence about where the temple was. None. I mean, you think, well, maybe a foundation stone or maybe this stone here or that. None. They are all done and gone. Such was the accuracy of Jesus' prophecy. Verse 2. Look at this. Do you see the great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Not one stone. Those all are gone. Now, you think about the, the disciples. For the disciples to think about the temple all gone, it would have like blown their mind. It would have been like totally unfathomable. 
They like wouldn't. How 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 could that happen? How can all these things be taken away? But alas, it has been done. This is something future for the the disciples that now is past for us. It was all done. And, and here's a big point of application. I think if Jesus could predict the absolute destruction of the temple with such accuracy, then he's able to be trusted with other prophecies that are made. Jesus doesn't lie. Jesus knows the future because he's God. And the testimonies that he gives and the prophecies he gives will come to pass. Well, there's the temple. Totally gone. Will be wiped away. And it is. Well, now we come to the trouble. Verse 3 and 4. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. So you've you got to stop there. There's a, a change of location. This is the Mount of Olives. So if we... The old the tabernacle was there, okay? If you go out the tabernacle, and if you go, let's see, if you're going east out of the tabernacle, you go down, okay? You, you go down, and then you go up, and it's called the Kidron Valley. Uh, it's not a it's not a big valley. I mean, it's um, probably a, and then you go down this valley and then go up to another mountain, which is a little bit above the Temple Mount, and that whole walk there's maybe a kilometer. You know, maybe take 20 minutes as you go down and, and as you go up. And it's called the Mount of Olives. That's why this discourse here in Mark 13 is called the Olivet Discourse from the Mount of Olives. And, and from the Mount of Olives, you get a great view of the Temple Mount. And uh, there it is. Okay, this is kind of hard to see, but you can see we're up a little bit. All right, and, and you go down, you lose all perspective, but you're going down, and these are Hebrew, these are Jewish graves here. You go down to the Kidron Valley, and then you go up, and you can see the big wall there. You kind of get an idea where that is in the big, uh, the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And, and you see that and you're sitting here. And then maybe another one. The next one, Ray. Kind of you can see, this is maybe how your eyes see it more. You can kind of see more and closer. And there you see the walls and there you see uh, where the, the giant mosque is. But there probably would have been the temple there is, is where they were. And as they were seated right there. Okay, we can take that off. As they were seated right up there on the Mount of, of Olives. I'm sure the judge would have said, oh, there's Jerusalem. Oh, there, there's that temple. Jesus, didn't you say something about that temple? You said it was going to be destroyed, falling down, really? And so they had a chance then to ask him about it. And if you look here, it's uh, Peter, James, John, and Andrew were questioning him privately. Now, my guess is that when Jesus said not one stone will be left upon another, my guess is that they... They heard that, and all the way down the Kidron Valley, and all the way up, they're kind of mulling that in their minds. But it wasn't a time to ask. But now that Jesus sat down, it was time to ask. What is this? Not one stone will be left upon another. What, what does that mean? So help us, Jesus. Here's the big question, right? Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? A twofold question, right? When will these things be? And what will be the sign? Uh, in Matthew's Gospel, we also see what will be the sign about the end of the age. When are these fulfilled? When are the end of the age? It's kind of like opening up a big, a big question. Like, when and what is going to happen during these times? And it's interesting, the response that Jesus gives, gives zero indication about the time. He doesn't talk about when. Rather, he just simply tells them the trouble they can expect. And, and, and I just say this, just a point of application. There are many who can learn a thing or two about this. He said, there are many who are into prophecy who are all trying to figure about when Jesus is going to come back and when is he going to come back and how is he? And, and I think that's a valid question. All right. At the end, first Peter, chapter one, 
Um, the, the prophets were looking into trying to figure out what person or matter of time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glorious to follow. He, they were searching. I think it's OK to search. But when Jesus comes to answer that question, he doesn't tell all about when he tells about what is going to take place, what you can expect. And Jesus said you can expect trouble, which is my second point. As I've mentioned verses three to eight is trouble. And there's anything to learn here from the words of Jesus. It's what life will be hard until he returns. Uh, I've been telling my message this morning, the beginning of birth pangs. Because that's the phrase Jesus used there at the end of verse 8. After all these things happen, he says, these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. After he talks about the seavers, after he talks about the wars, after he talks about the famines and the earthquakes, then he says, this is just the beginning of birth pangs. So let's take the analogy in the real world, right? A woman comes to the doctor Who's great with child and what what's on her mind? Doctor, when is my due date? Right. When when can I expect this this baby? And the doctor then proceeds to tell her about labor, what to expect. Well, at some point, your water will break. You start having contractions. It'll be irregular, maybe a 15 minutes. Some of these might just feel like cramps. Some of these will really hurt bad. That's just the beginning of birth pangs. Kind of implication. It's going to get worse later. That's what Peter says here, right? To Peter, James, and John, and Andrew here. When he talks to these guys, he just says, listen, the troubles you're going to be, face, it's just the beginning of birth pangs. But again, like our applications last week, there are two points of application today. One, don't be misled. Verse 5, that's the first thing he says. See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And will mislead many. In other words, people are going to rise up and proclaim themselves to be the Messiah. They're going to rise up and say, I am the Christ. I'm the anointed of the Father. But, but they say more than just I'm the Christ. What, what does that mean? If I'm the Christ, if I'm the anointed, what does that mean about you guys? You better follow me, right? Because I'm, I'm the anointed one. Come follow me and I will show you where to go. And, and really what's happening here is people are just trying to get a following. Um, and... And Jesus says, don't be misled by them. Now, the sad fact is that that many have come and claimed to be the Messiah. And many have been misled and followed after these people. The early disciples saw several of them. Josephus was a Jewish historian who, whose, whose life revolved around the time of Christ, so after the time of Christ. And so he writes of uh, history about the Jews and, and he writes also about what took place in the days of Jesus and what took place in the days following and uh, he told of how Jerusalem was filled with many deceivers, is what he said. Many deceivers persuaded multitudes to follow them into the wilderness. And once they were there, they claimed they'd exhibit many signs and wonders, right? Performed by the providence of God. Look at this and come follow me. He told of one deceiver who came out of Egypt to Jerusalem, claimed to be a prophet. He persuaded 600 people to follow him to the Mount of Olives, where he would command the walls of Jerusalem to fall down. And uh, Felix, the governor, found out about it and he killed 400 of these followers, took 200 of them alive. Josephus tells of a man named Theuda who persuaded many people to follow him to the River Jordan, claiming to be some kind of prophet. He claimed that at his word, the River Jordan be divided into two, right? Just like Moses and Joshua did. But at that time, Phaedus, the procurator of Judea, heard about his efforts and slew many of these people. And Theodos himself was decapitated, claiming to be the Christ, having many people follow, only then to meet with destruction. And that's, 
that's the reality of the situation down through all the ages. There's always been false Christs and people following after them, right? In the 1970s, it was who, Phil? Jim Jones, right? Prophet down in Jonestown in Guyana. Almost a thousand people he convinced to drink the Kool-Aid. That's where we get the phrase. They drank the Kool-Aid. In the 1990s, it was David Koresh. Right? Had almost a hundred followers in Waco, Texas. He believed, listen, he believed that he was the lamb of Revelation 5 because he could interpret the seals of Revelation 6. Well, he and 73 other members met their end in 1993. Today, there's a man named Sergei Torup who calls himself Viserion Christ. I'm not sure if you heard of this guy. He's affectionately known as Jesus of Siberia. He believes that he is the reincarnation of Jesus. He lives in a mountain log cabin in Siberia someplace near the southern border of Siberia. And he has thousands of followers. Estimates up to 10,000, 20,000 people follow this guy thinking that he is the reincarnated Jesus. They call themselves the Last Testament church. Jesus says, don't be misled by these false Christs. Now, here's the interesting. I think the chances of us being misled by these false Christs are probably not very many because there aren't false Christs that rise up. But the principle stays the same in terms of there are plenty of people who are professing to be prophets or who are false teachers who many flock after like the Pied Piper. See, religion's a great tool to get lots of followers and obtain lots of money and lots of power. And many people have used it for such an end. And there are many, many false religious leaders across the planet. Many of them are, are self-deceived. And many people following them are deceived as well. And, and, and there is, a, we're talking about the end. There is particularly even the deception that comes when predicting the end of the world. Right? Case in point in our day, who predicted the end of the world in recent days? Harold Camping did, right? He, he's president of Family Radio, which... Um, broadcast 150 locations. Uh, I've listened to it. There's a lot of good stuff on there, but uh, he says some good things, but he says some bad things. The way he says bad is really bad. Um, he uses radio station to deceive many for, that Jesus was returning. First time was 1994. He wrote a book, 1994, question mark, September of 1994. He thought Jesus was going to come back. The judgment day was going to come. Well, September 6, 1994 came and went. You'd think that Harold Camping would have some sense about what it meant felt to be wrong, but his second prediction comes in 2011. He thought that Jesus would return May 21st, 2011. And 2000, May 21st, 2011 didn't turn out quite right. So he modified. He said, oh, there's a spiritual coming of Jesus. That's what happened. And he's given us now five months, right, from Revelation, I think it's chapter 7, speaks about how the angels can torment for five months. And then after five months, then he's going to, the real judgment is coming October 21st. Well, that's come and gone. Just like December 21st is going to come and go um, in all likelihood. Now, I don't know how many people are caught up following Harold Camping in these things. I, I suspect the number's in the thousands. I mean, the advertising campaign that they had across the, the world is astonishing. And we had to have lots of people coming and, and following after him. Um, and I think they were generally convinced that the world was coming to an end. And the same thing that happened with uh, Harold Camping happens, has happened before. I mean, in terms of predicting some kind of return of Christ and then just saying, oh, that was a spiritual return of Christ. And then continuing on, like the Jehovah Witnesses claim that Jesus came back in 1914 
And so they said, well, he didn't really. Well, it's, that's that's the end of the last days. And and uh, now we're done at the time of the, the Gentiles is kind of what they say. Oh, that's when the kingdom was established in 1914. I remember talking with a Jehovah's Witness one time and and uh, this woman um, was talking about how Jesus came in 1914. I said, oh, really? She said, oh, yes, it's so obvious that he's come, isn't it? <laughs> it's like, no, it's not obvious that he has come. But she believed that he'd come and and uh, brought the kingdom of heaven and countless millions followed Jehovah's Witnesses. Or in the 1840s, William Miller attained many, many followers and he was convinced that Jesus would return in 1844. And there's a whole, they thought he'd come and he didn't come. And then they thought, well, he'd come a little bit later and he didn't come. He didn't come a little later. Exactly what Harold Camping did has come with, with others. And uh, so then eventually the, the Millerites and those who followed them have come to believe, whoa, in 1844, that's when Jesus began to purify the heavenly temple. And the Day of Atonement came, and he's going to start cleansing our sins. And when he's done cleansing everybody's sins personally, then he's going to come back. Have you heard of that? I know you have, Neela. Well, the message here is don't be misled. Don't be misled by a false prophet, by a false teacher. May we be Bereans, and may the, the Word of God right, direct our way. And some people are highly fanciful. If they're getting fanciful, it's probably wrong. Or they're highly into money or power. If they're into that, they're probably wrong. Let's not be misled. Second thing, don't be frightened. Right? We see the admonition come right here in verse 7. Right? When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. These things must take place. But that is not yet the end. He says wars must take place before the end. He says, verse 8, For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. But these are merely the beginning of birth pangs. So, in some regard, we anticipate the end. We ought not, Jesus says, to anticipate as a time of great peace. The false prophet is the one who says, peace, peace. When there is no peace, Jesus says there's going to be conflict. Right? But Jesus said it's not just going to be conflict at the end. What did Jesus say? There's going to be conflict preparing along those ways. You know, the world has never known peace. Not in the time of Jesus. Not in our times. There's always been wars. There's always been rumors of wars. There's always been nations rising against nations and kingdoms against kingdoms. If you just read the Bible, you've got to see the Bible's filled with, with wars. Genesis 14, the war of the kings. The time of Joshua, wars coming. Taking out the, the promised land. The time of Judges, the Midianites rising up, back and forth with Israel. The books of Samuel, Kings and Chronicles. You read the Philistines and the Jebusites and the Hittites and the Amorites. And you, you read all these. and all the, Even so much so, 2 Samuel chapter 11 says, in the time when the kings normally go out to war. It's like every year the, teams go out, the kings go out to war. Like wars and rumors of war was there. And in fact, even, even since the time of Christ, you can hardly find... A day in history when nations aren't fighting against nation. You give me a year and I can probably find some kind of war that was happening, battle between nation and nation. And the disciples of Jesus, it was, it was no different for them. Josephus, the historian, one of the books he wrote was called The War of the Jews. Right? The war that these Jews have fought since the days of Abraham. It's just been constant struggle, constant fight. And none was greater than the war launched against them by the Romans when Titus came and destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70. And we'll look at that more to come. 
um, maybe next week, maybe after Christmas. Uh, we'll see how, how far we go. But it definitely will take place when we get to verse 14, about AD 70 and the things that took place. I mean, people died, many Jewish people died in that attack. And since that day, wars and conflicts in the world. I mean, it's the Crusades in the Middle Ages. And um, today, to the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, there's never been a time of global peace. Conflicts have been worldwide, even. Last generation, World War One, World War Two. Conflicts have been among nations in Korea, Bosnia, you just go on, um, Ethiopia, Cambodia. I mean, just fighting wars, tribal stuff all the time. There have been civil wars, religious wars, trade wars. This is, this is just regular pattern of life. Jesus paints this, and it's not a pretty sight. And, and, and some is preparing us, you, you're going to have trouble in this life. Things are going to be hard. At the end of verse 8, then, he speaks not only just about natural human disasters that come about because of sin, he also talks about the natural disasters that take place. There will be earthquakes, he says, in various places. And there will be famines. But these things are merely the beginning of, of of birth pangs. He predicts earthquakes. You know, the Josephus tells of an earthquake in Judea. He told about this violent storm in the middle of night, the showers of rain coming down and lightnings and thunderings. And he called it uh, an amazing concussions and bellowings of the earth that was in an earthquake. So Josephus lived through a, a giant earthquake during his days. In fact, the things were so terrible that Jesus commented, anyone would guess that these wonders foreshadowed some grand calamities that were coming. In AD 109, there was a huge earthquake that Cornelius Tacitus told that took place in Laodicea and Rome during the reign of Nero shortly after the fall, shortly before the fall of Jerusalem took place. Some of these did. Earthquakes in, in 526 AD. An earthquake in Antioch killed 300,000 people. In 526 A.D., 300,000 people. 1556, an earthquake took place in China. Over almost a million people killed. In Portugal in 1700s. Uh, and I've just got a list of, of several of, of these here. In 1900s, right? Earthquakes have hit San Francisco and Italy, Turkey, China, Japan, Chile, Iran. I mean, you just name a place... And uh, there's earthquakes all over the place. It's always been that way. The tsunami that hit Southeast Asia, killing more than 200,000 people, that was all caused by an earthquake. Earthquakes have just happened continually. Some say, well, they've really been increasing in recent days. And maybe that's the case. But they, they have been before and it's not been a sign of the end. I think Jesus is saying, you know what, there's going to be earthquakes. And the, the earth is going to shake and it's going to tremble. And famines have been a reality on the planet since the days of Jesus. The Bible speaks about a famine. Acts 11, verse 28. Agabus, the prophet, stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine over the world. Luke adds, it took place the reign of, during the reign of Claudius. And Josephus, even during his days, spoke about uh, many people in Jerusalem dying for lack of food. And he tells this heroic event of Queen Helena coming and delivering food to the people who, who needed food. And Helena's son, Azadus, sent great sums of money to those in Jerusalem to help with the famine as well. But famines just weren't, weren't around to the Jews in, in Jesus' day or shortly after. They've always taken place. Famines in the Bible were in the place of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Think about Ruth. 
I mean, the, the whole reason why she was born in Moab is because her father-in-law went there due to a famine. History of Israel and Judah mingled with famines all, all throughout history. It's always been in recent years with famines in Ethiopia and Kenya and Sudan and Mozambique and Zambia and Zimbabwe, just to name a few countries. Famine, famine has always been. So you say, so what? Well, just I hope you see in this section of Scripture here from verses 3 to 8 or from 5 to 8 that Jesus isn't really telling us anything different about life than how life really is. Oh, there may be a sense where things get worse right before Jesus returns. I mean, we see that later on, you know, about fleeing and going away. But if anything this, this tells you about is, is the fact that, that life is difficult and life is sorrowful. And that's how it's always going to be. And one of the things I, I fear is that, um, you know, for those who are into end times, every time there's an earthquake, they think, oh, is this the end? Every time they're saying, oh, is this the end? Oh, is this the last wars? And, and, and what did Jesus say? He said, when you hear these things, don't be frightened. Don't be frightened. This is all it's always going to be. And, and so you say this. Why is it? How is it that we cannot be frightened when we might die? Might die from an earthquake or might die from a famine or might die from a war. How is it that we might not be frightened? Well, it all comes back to our God that we worship. Phil read for us Psalm 46. I just want to end there this morning in Psalm 46 because it, it places our heart deep in the sovereignty of God. That when trouble comes, He's our help in trouble. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. There it is. My point is that trouble is coming. He says that God's a refuge and strength. He's the one in whom we can trust. He's our refuge. And it says in verse 2, look here. Therefore, we will not fear. Just tied exactly what Jesus is saying in Mark 13. I don't think it's any rocket science. If God is in control, if He's a refuge, we don't need to fear because God is the one who can help us and strengthen us. Though the earth should change... And though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. What's he describing there? Earthquakes, trouble, storm. He's talking about mountains slipping into the heart of the sea. He's talking about California. Gone is what he's talking about here. And he's saying that God is our refuge. We have no need to fear. God is not going to be moved. Look at verse 5. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. When the nations made an uproar and the kingdoms tottered, He raised His voice, the earth melted. In other words, when the nations are going out, God just shouts, raises His voice, and, and nations fall away from Him. Come, behold, verse 8 says, the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations in the earth. Right? He's brought bad things. He's made wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot with fire. I mean, he, he, he destroys things. He stops wars. He's the one that can make every war stop. He's the one that can stop the war in Afghanistan. He's the one that can stop North Korea 
from launching their missile. And here's what it is. Cease striving and know that I am God. This is really the message of the Bible. It says that we always need to seek our refuge in God, regardless of what our difficulties may be. And if the situations in the world have stirred your heart to fear, then I just say seek refuge in God. Are you in danger in some sense, in some way? Right? Seek refuge in, in God. Are you finding yourself to be weak? Well, find your refuge in God and find your strength there. Are you trapped in your sin? Then, then seek refuge at the cross of Christ. Are you, are you fearful of the future? Then run to Him. I mean, if anything that Mark 13 ought to teach us about is that the trouble's coming, and where do we find the solution to our trouble? We find it in God. We find it in Jesus Christ. Jesus in control. Have you ever thought about how is it that He can predict the future? How is it that He can tell the future? Because He knows the future is the author of the future. He's got the whole world in His hands. And I just say, church family, let's, let's trust in Him. Let's not be fearful even if, even if we take a fiscal downturn. Even if there are some army uprisings, riots, whatever. Let's, let's trust in the Lord in all ways. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd cause us to interpret Mark 13 right. I just see here just so many things are just normal life. God, we have lived in Disneyland for so long. How different our experience is than the experience of many in persecuted lands. I think about the text next week where Jesus speaks about being handed over to governors to give an account. And we don't know that, but it's. It's not that that hasn't happened or isn't ever happening. It happened to all the disciples. They all stood before governors. They all lost their lives, either physically or to exile, as John did. Every single one of them saw and knew exactly what Jesus said. And there are people today, more martyrs being killed today than ever. And I would pray, Lord, that we would trust in you. God, we have it so easy. I pray that we'd be people of the to bank all of our all of our hope in you. I would pray for the, the soul that's fearful, seeking to do things on his or her own strength. Uh, I pray they'd run to Jesus. They'd cease striving and know that you are God, that you will be exalted among the nations. God, the Lord of hosts is with us. What wonderful news that is. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.